and I just thank God for the warm welcome that I always receive. And it's been a while uh, since I've been here, and I really have wanted to get here. I've tried to get here several times, and only now has it happened, so I'm really grateful. Before I go to uh, the, 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 word of, the words of Jeremiah, uh, Zechariah, I would like to just uh, once again pick up my book. I want you to notice something. This is very thin, okay? Only about 100 pages or so, because the Lord has been showing me. Get to the point. The time is short. It's very urgent. And I wrote this book, War on the Saints. Now, I get a lot of grief, because evidently there's another book out there called War on the Saints. And actually, I'm very familiar with it. It's a very good classic written by Jesse Penn Lewis 100 years ago. But look, you can't fault me for calling this, because this is a phrase from the Bible. And the Bible says Satan was given the power to make war on the saints and prevail. And I wrote this book out of a burden and an urgent burden that we, uh, people, whether they realize it or not, now I, uh, people are increasingly beginning to realize it, but so many are clueless to the idea that we are locked in a deadly spiritual warfare. And so much of what you see going on in the world all around you that we think is just so odd and so crazy and insane like transgenderism and all this other stuff. But that's spiritual to the core. That is the devil, devil's attack. I'm trying to alert people to this. This is the, 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 the big vital struggle that's going to run through the heart of every single human being. And it begins in the house of God, doesn't it? Judgment begins in the house of God. And look, uh, the greatest uh, spiritual, religious test the world's ever seen is coming on us. And I am really brokenhearted and, and uh, very concerned that... So many, especially in the house of God, are utterly, utterly oblivious. It's just business as usual. And, of course, I fault the pastors and the false prophets and the religious charlatans who have seduced people into a comfortable vision of God that they can accommodate the world, and it's, uh, this, is, this is deadly, okay? This is really deadly. You know, before I get to my scripture, can I give a few mini-sermons? Look, there's a terrible, terrible, terrible... Heresy. There's a lot of heresies, right? Many, many heresies. And you know that you know me, that have read my books and everything. I've been preaching against heresies for the whole time of my ministry, okay? And I wrote books about it and everything like that. But I think that the worst heresy of all is more prevalent now than ever. And that is this idea that uh, of once saved, always saved, that if you pray a prayer, have a religious experience at some time, that that's it. That's all that you have to concern yourself with. You're good. And, and this uh, mistaken notion of the grace of God that is being poured out on people and seducing them out of the fear of God and out of the, the capacity to seek God with all of their being. I mean, this is a very, very serious thing that I could get into the detail about in some other time. But suffice it to say this, here's my mini-sermon. This generation of Christians has more emphasis on grace than any other generation before and knows less about it. How could that be? Here's what the Lord showed me. That you can't even begin to understand grace unless the Lord gives you a revelation of a few things that are the context around grace. For example, you could not grasp the grace of God unless you have some revelation from God of the enormity of your sin. 
Remember Isaiah? He's crushed. He, he, he doesn't even want to live anymore. And he says, I'm undone. Woe is me. He's calling curses and judgment on himself. Why? Well, the Lord revealed something to him, right? So you can't, you can't get grace just as an end in itself. And grace is preached without any context. And by the way, the way modern preachers are doing it, it's almost like a teeny bopper's rock song, okay? God loves you. God's passionate. God has abandoned himself. He's lovesick for you. This is not the way the Bible talks about grace. This is a seduction. And I hate to say it, but for people who think like teenage girls or something, okay, that it's all feeling and emotion and it's seducing people. The Bible has a lot to say about grace. But you can't understand grace until you get some kind of a revelation of the enormity of what sin really is. And another thing you can't understand grace at all, unless you can gain some kind of an understanding of the freedom of God. You ever heard of that doctrine, the freedom of God? We always talk about the freedom of us, and it's true. I'm so glad Jesus set me free. Do you know God was free and is free and always will be free? And what that means is he doesn't have to save anybody. He's not under any obligation. If he sent the whole human race to hell, he would be doing the right thing because he's a holy God. Now, that's not what he's chosen to do, thank the Lord. That's grace. I mean, when you understand, you know what? I don't have a claim, really, that anything God does is just sheer mercy and love. And there's another one. I'm almost done with this mini-sermon. I already got that sinking feeling, all right? I'll finish. I just got two more points. That you cannot understand the grace of God unless you understand the enormity of your sins. Some revelation. I mean, you got to get a glimpse of this, right? Two pe people are cavalier. And uh, you can't understand the grace of God unless you understand the freedom of God. And you can't understand the grace of God at all. Once again, I fault the preachers. Unless you accept the idea that what the Bible reveals is that this is a moral universe. That there is such a thing as punishment as punishment. Not just re reformation. Punishment as an end in itself. Because there is a law that if it's broken, then there must be penalty. There must be punishment. There must be uh, a, a due reward. We live in a moral universe. This is the, this is the problem, too, is that uh, people think that the issue of the gospel is love. Well, that is not, not a non-issue. But the main issue is righteousness. In, this, in other words, there's coming a judgment, and the standard of judgment is absolute righteousness. Not partial, absolute. This is the real gospel. And so we go out and preach the real gospel. So God, you're going to stand and give account of your whole life to God, and the standard is absolute righteousness. Do you have it? And of course, anyone that's honest with themselves would have to say, no, I don't have it. I do, what am I going to do? Well, the gospel is that, you know, what God demands, God provides. The gift of righteousness, Jesus Christ. And there's one other thing that I don't think you can understand grace with, without. And that is some kind of revelation of how uh, truly bankrupt and helpless we are 
to save ourselves. Now that song, which I think, I wish it was America's National Anthem. It's not, but I wish it was. Amazing Grace. The verse in the psalm that says, it was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. Grace showed me that I'm a sinner. Grace showed me that my sin is a serious issue. Grace showed me that this is a moral universe, right? And grace showed me that there's a judgment day coming. And grace gave me the fear of God. And that grace, that grace then led me to the gift. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes on him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Now let me get to my sermon on God Remembers tonight. I wrote a book. I wish I had it here. I thought it was going to be sent up, but something happened. It's called God Remembers. And it's a commentary on the book of Zechariah. And uh, that, because that's what his name means, God Remembers, okay? Now, now if there's ever a time that we ought to familiarize ourselves with Zechariah, Joel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah... I mean, here's the thing that I've been trying to show people for quite a while, but especially in the last three or four years, is that the stunning relevance of these prophecies to today, it's almost, to use a modern phrase, like a high-definition picture that was given 2,500, 3,000 years ago of the very days that we live in right now. That's why I wrote that book over there called a Sword on the Land, which is subtitled The Muslim World in Bible Prophecy. <laughs> By the way, I can't believe the dearth of prophecy teaching. <laughs> it's incredible. The prophecies are happening. The pages of the Bible are coming alive. It's like a movie. You're just watching this thing one after another after another. You open the newspaper and you think you're reading Isaiah or you're reading Isaiah and you, th- you actually think you're, you're in the newspaper. It's right before our eyes. The old, who's going to be oblivious to it? Okay, but like Isaiah complained about pastors in his day, sleeping dogs, they won't bark, they won't warn. Man, one day there's coming a terrible accountability. Let me give you, my problem is, I don't know where to start and I don't know where to finish, but let's start in Zechariah chapter 12. I'll tell you what I'm going to do with this chapter. I'm going to cassette it. I know the young people here have no idea what I'm talking about. Kids, you're not going to believe this, but a long time ago there was a relic called a tape cassette. I know, a scroll in a plastic box. That's how we learned the Bible, because we had piles of these things, okay? And, uh, but the beauty of the tape cassette is that if you're listening to a message, you can stop and rewind it. So that's what I mean why I'm going to cassette Zechariah 12. I'm just going to walk you through this, and I'm going to stop at certain places and explain this. Father, just bless us. Show us, Lord. It's not my thing or my presentation. This is what you gave us in the Word so that your people would know. The kings of the earth and the rulers do not have a clue about what's actually happening. The experts and the pundits have no idea. But you have revealed them 
to your people. But Lord, who's going to listen to us? Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord, which stretches forth the heavens and lays the foundations of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. There you go. Beautiful. <laughs> well, first let's stop the tape. The burden is Israel. Okay. You cannot understand what the Bible says about the day we live in or the end times until you take into account Israel. Now I assume that you know that, that there was a prophetic significance of what happened in 1948. A nation that had gone out of existence for 2,000 years. This is, this is unprecedented. Okay. In my view, what happened in 1948 supersedes the Red Sea. The, party, the Red Sea parted, the whole nation crossed on dry land. Whoa, man, you'd think if you saw that, you'd never doubt again, right? Well, I think what happened in May 1948 supersedes it. Because let's take a historical perspective. And by the way, when I preach prophecy, I always refer to history. You cannot separate the two. What is prophecy but history written in advance? Okay. You had a nation who Moses warned, here's what your future is. You're going to follow idols. You're going to come under God's displeasure. I'm going to take you through foreign powers, and I will scatter you from one end of the earth to the other, and there you will stay until the last days. So in 70 AD, the Romans put a siege up around Jerusalem, and they destroy the walls, destroy the temple, and they glut the world's slave markets with Jews, and they spread them literally, like Moses said, from one end of the heavens to the other. And that was the end of the Jewish nation for 2,000 years. Now that's not a miracle because other nations have been obliterated. Many nations have been obliterated. You guys don't know any Philistines, do you? Does anyone here work with a Hittite? I didn't think so. Okay. But here's the miracle that's greater than the Red Sea in my view. Who ever heard of a nation obliterated for 2,000 years and kept in state and then reconstituted 2,000 years later? Jeremiah says, look, he that scattered Israel will regather her. We've already seen in our lifetime a miracle as big as a billboard that shouts to the world, God is real. Get your house in order. These are the end times. Repent and seek the Lord while he can be found. If you've got nothing else but that, you have seen a miracle. Now, I've uh, got a friend in the Brisbane area that has a, uh, he's an evangelist, and he printed a T-shirt, and it's uh, had a quotation from the Encyclopedia Britannica, 1912, that says, the likeliness of the Hebrew language ever being spoken again is about as far removed as the likeliness that the Jews will ever come back to the Holy Land. <laughs> That's why you don't consult Encyclopedia Britannica anymore. You go to Google, all right? Now, let me go on. Burn of the word of the Lord for Israel. Now, I've got to do this because the Hebrew language is so beautiful that there's something hidden there that we don't get unless you understand it. So I'm going to do this. Says the, says the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, forms the spirit of man and within him. No. Says the Lord who continuously stretches out the heavens. Who continuously is laying the foundations of the earth. 
who continuously gives man his life and being. I find that beautiful. So I always do that in this presentation. Let's go to the next verse. Behold, I'll make Jerusalem. Wait. Stop the tape. First of all, this is God speaking. He says, I will make Jerusalem. And I want to make this point first. Whatever happens to Jerusalem, whatever happens to Israel, whatever happens to Syria, Lebanon, the surrounding nations, you can know that that's not Trump or that's not the British or that's not the Muslims or that's not the Palestinians. God is working in the world today. God is orchestrating the world. I wrote that book shortly after something called the Arab Spring. And I remember when the Arab Spring happened in 2011, people were excited, like, oh, good, democracy's coming to the Muslim world. And I knew that, not, that they were misinterpreting what was happening. That's not what was happening at all. It was more like you take a, gla- a bottle of champagne and shake it 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 and then pop the cork out and outrush forces long suppressed that will never be brought back into the bottle again. God was setting the nations up of the world for this scenario right here. I'll make Jerusalem. Oh, wait, stop the tape. Jerusalem. I'm going to tell some of you what's obvious to you, but you still, it bears repeating. The Lord told me to proclaim it everywhere. Jerusalem is the most important city on earth. It is the most important city on earth. That's not what I say. That's what God says. What's God say about Jerusalem? What makes it the most important city? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but one I'll have to give you right now. It's the only city on earth where God has said, hey, I put my name there forever. Now, I don't even know fully what that means, but you've got to admit that that's saying alone of God. That's the place where my name shall dwell forever. What? It's the most important city on earth. Well, we, you guys probably know if you're Christian, one of our earliest psalms that we learned whether you realize it or not, it's Psalm 48. Great is the Lord. You guys know that one? Greatly to be praised is the city of our God in the mountain of His holiness. Beautiful for situation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north. What? The city of the great King. It's the city of the great King. What's that mean? that the king of the universe is going to come back and that's where he's going to land. It's the city of the great king. Now, Jesus quoted that verse in the Sermon on the Mount. Did you know that? Because at one point in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't swear by heaven, it's the throne of God. Don't swear at all by earth, you can't do that. It's God's footstool. Don't swear whatever you do by Jerusalem. Why? It's the city of the great king. There's something about Jerusalem that's so heavy. In fact, let me take a little bit more time with this. That's the place where Jesus died outside the, the, city, the city walls of Jerusalem and where Satan was dealt a fatal blow. Now is the judgment of this world. There's a hole in the ground outside of Jerusalem that's the earth's most serious womb. It's the empty tomb where Jesus was raised from the dead. Jerusalem is the place where Zechariah will tell us, I'll show you in a minute, that's where Jesus is going to land when he comes back. After, by the way, after he goes down to Jordan, takes care of some business down there, but that's another story for another time. He goes to Edom. But anyway, Jerusalem is so heavy, and it's mentioned 800 times in the Bible, and it's the most important city on earth, okay? Not only to God, 
but to the UN too. The UN, which is the world body of all nations on earth, a world congress, never even existed until 1945, has designated Jerusalem as it cannot be one city. It's two. Well, who divided it? The UN. We decree cannot be a city. By the way, did you know that the Jerusalem is not in Israel? Did you know that? Let me tell you a story from America. A boy, about 15 years old, happened to be Jewish, American, wanted to get a passport. So he applied to the passport office, and one of the questions on the passport thing says, what is your origin? And he said, I am from Jerusalem, Israel. And he's denied a passport. Why? You can't say Jerusalem's in Israel. Not in Israel. Well, God thinks it is, but they don't. So he did what any red-blooded American boy would do in a situation like that. He hired a lawyer and sued him. All right. Of course. And guess what? The lower court says, you can't say Jerusalem's in Israel. It's not. Jerusalem's not in Israel. It's an international city. It's not, it can't be in Israel. Israel doesn't have that city. So he went, and in the U.S., you could keep on suing up. He must have had a lot of money. And guess what? I mean, this is really where it gets spooky. It all, went all the way to the top court of the land. Now think with me for a minute. The Supreme Court. They probably hear about 200,000 cases are presented to them a year, and they have clerks just filing through, no, no, not this one, not this one. It's not important enough. Not this one, not this one, not this one. Because they feel that they should only listen to the cases of supreme and vital interest to the United States and its people. And they chose that one. You mean it's of supreme interest to the United States and its people to determine whether Jerusalem's in Israel? Evidently. And he waited with bated breath, but the Supreme Court back and, came back and said, you can't say Jerusalem's in Israel. It's not. It's not in Israel. God says it is. But the UN says it's not. I wonder if you could see the collision that's coming. Now, uh, he says, <laughs> well, I'll make Jerusalem a cup of trembling. Or stop the tape. Let me define a cup of trembling. It's a biblical term. What is a cup of trembling? Well, for the sake of time, I'll just define it. A cup of trembling is a divine judgment on a nation. And what it is, is he makes the leaders drink a cup of trembling, and they get drunk and cannot pursue the interest of the nation. They become self-destructive, confused, deluded, until they're destroyed. When God wants to judge a specific nation, he gives his leaders a cup of trembling. Now, the first nation to ever receive that was Israel. Judah, in his last days, drank a cup of trembling, and uh, it, it was destroyed. And when you read the last days of Judah, I mean, it's like, where was the leadership? Why were these people so self-destructive? They fell in on each other because they drank the cup of trembling. Now, this was scaring me for a long time because... That was the only reason I could see for some of the actions of the world leaders in the West. Why are you doing this? Why are you baptizing your own nations with people that do not have anything in common with you, hate your very existence, and you bring them in in the millions? What in the world is going on? Well, among other things, it's a divine judgment. 
I'm gonna, he says, I'm going to make Jerusalem the cup of trembling. Now, he's not saying I'm going to make Jerusalem drink the cup of trembling. He's saying the issue of Jerusalem will become a cup of trembling to who? To the nations round about. Now, once again, think about it. Israel is in the worst neighborhood in the world. Who have they got for neighbors? Well, you got Jordan, and you got Saudi Arabia, and you got Iraq, and you got Syria, and you got Lebanon, and you, you know, you could go on and on and on, and a little bit further you got Yemen, and you got Egypt. And what do these nations all have in common? They all hold to a religion. They never held to that religion when Zechariah prophesied this, because that religion didn't exist. It's called Islam. That religion of the nations round about Jerusalem. Now this is very important, and I think it's very important for Christians to understand this. That religion has a tenet that's spoken several places in its hadiths called the prophecy of the tree. Now what is the prophecy of the tree? The prophecy of the tree is the words of Muhammad, the last day cannot come until the Muslims rise up and slaughter the Jews. On that day, a Jew will hide behind a tree or a rock, and the tree or the rock will cry out and say, Servant of Allah, there's a Jew hiding behind me. Come and kill him. Now this is dead sober serious, because there's actually people that think that we can make, they can make peace with these people. When it's a tenet of their religion. And they want, they want the last day to come. You know why? Islam doesn't give you assurance of salvation. You'll never know what's going to happen to you until the last day. So they want it to come because they want to settle that issue. Now, let me move on here. <clears throat> oh, let me talk about Jerusalem again. Barack Hussein Obama, when he was president, one of the first things he did was unprecedented. He wanted to give a conciliatory talk to the Muslim world. That's one out of seven billion people. One, one, one billion people, okay. One billion plus. He didn't do it from Washington, D.C. He did it from Cairo. And he did it from Al-Azhar University, which is Harvard, Yale, and uh, Cambridge of world terrorism, Sunni terrorism. And I don't have time to go into all the various distortions in his speech, which it was very interesting and very significant speech. I mean, he's the leader of the free world addressing the Muslim world. But there is one thing that I just point out, is that he, uh, he, he only made two references to the Quran in the speech, and one of them was the Isra, which has to do with Jerusalem. And I know that you're probably up on your Quran, so I don't need to tell you what the Isra is, so I'll just go on. Oh, someone there raised their hand. All right. The Isra is the part of the Quran that says, now you can't make this stuff up, that Muhammad got on a winged horse named Barak. <laughs> and that horse took him to Al-Aqsa. Ever heard that expression, Al-Aqsa? Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade. Al-Aqsa is a phrase in the Quran that means the farthest place. Now, the Bible mentions Jerusalem quite a bit, right? More than 800 times the Bible mentions Jerusalem. But Islam, the Quran doesn't mention Jerusalem by name at all. Only Muslim scholars today say 
that the Isra is referring to Jerusalem. Now, the, Jerusalem is the third holiest place in Islam. And what is their claim to it? One dubious verse in the Quran. And that is the whole claim to Jerusalem. Now, Muhammad, now uh, Muhammad went up to heaven on Barak, and he had a prayer meeting with Jesus and Moses and Isaiah or whoever else, because they're all Muslims, all right? That's the Israel, right? So when the world's free, supposed leader of the free world spoke to the Muslim world, he quoted the one citation in the Quran that one billion people say, that is our claim to Jerusalem. It is ours, not the Jews. Think about that. See, and when you, when you think about that, look at this verse. Because Zechariah predicted it 2,500 years ago. I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone to all the nations round about. I'll make them a, no, I'll make them a cup of trembling and to all the nations round about. When they will be in the siege. Is that modern? They'll be in a siege. What does the siege mean? You isolate a nation. You demonize them. You cut off all their support. You flip everyone that was on their side. And you set up a total isolation situation so that they will be destroyed. When those nations are in a siege, he says, against Judah and against Jerusalem. Well, let me break this down. I've only gone through two verses now, right? And I'm not even through the second verse. Judah and Jerusalem. Now, here's the thing, okay? Uh, there is... Uh, Matthew 24 is the definitive sermon of Jesus on the end times. Did you know that? This is Jesus' fullest exposition of our day that we're living in and what to look for in the signs of the times and everything. And when Matthew 24 starts with three questions, what shall be the sign of thy coming in the end of the age? When will these things be? And he starts giving signs, and every one of his signs are universal signs. Okay, There will be earthquakes. Where? Uh, everywhere, diverse places. There'll be false prophets. Where? Everywhere. There'll be wars. Where? Everywhere. Rumors of war. Everywhere. Plagues. Everywhere. But then all of a sudden in verse 14, he gets local. Not everywhere. He pinpoints one place. He says, look, and I'm paraphrasing him. When you see the sacrilege that the prophet Daniel warned us about, and then Matthew says, everyone should understand Daniel. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Don't even go back to get your coat. Pray to God it doesn't happen in the winter. Pray to God you're not pregnant when it happens. Pray to the Lord it doesn't happen on the Sabbath. Something so bad is going to happen in Judah that the next thing Jesus said, he quotes Daniel 12, and you know and I know that Jesus does not use hyperbole. He says, then there will be great tribulation such as the world has never seen before. It'll be so bad, it'll be like they'd never seen it again either. The worst thing that ever happened. Can anything be worse than World War I, World War II? Can it be worse than that? Oh, something so bad 
is coming. That Jesus lifted up his eyes from the pages of the Bible and looked at a people on a geographical location called Judah. Now, let me just take a step back. See, Judah is always in the news, but you'd never know it. You know why? Because they'll never use the real name for it. CNN will never say Judah or Judea. What will they say? The West Bank, the occupied territories, the Palestinian mandate. You see, if I showed you a map of Israel, you'd see a big oblong diamond and a huge bite taken out of it. That is the mountains of Israel, Judea and Samaria. And that bite is because the UN has designated that that does not belong to the Jews. We designate that as a new Palestinian homeland. And there's another little bite on the other side called Gaza. That's in the news all the time, right? That too is a Palestinian homeland. Now, Zechariah predicted 2,500 years ago the siege will be against Jerusalem and Judea. Now, there is, um, I've been talking about the UN because I believe the UN plays a major role in the last days. And the UN has a subdivision that's basically a lunatic asylum called UNESCO, United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. And what UNESCO's job is a legitimate job go through the world and appoint World Heritage Sites. Take a look at everything that's of historical significance, call it a World Heritage Site, and call the attention of the world to it, and we'll maintain it, and it'll be just wonderful. It'll be the property of the whole world, right? So UNESCO does that, but when they went through Judea, first of all, they came to the tomb. By the way, did you know you could go to Israel, and, and, you, and well, in, in Judea especially, you'll find the tomb of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Rebecca, Sarah, Leah, the patriarchs. Still there. Okay, now this is funny, okay. The Bible is very interesting, isn't it? And the Genesis is like so interesting, right? And every single thing in Genesis is handpicked by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit says, I want that in there and not this, that in there and not this, that in there and not this. If you think about it, Genesis is very succinct. When you think about that is the foundation of everything important to humanity, it's only 50 chapters, but they're very, very manageable, right? So in all these interesting things that are there and all the things that you think might should be there, but they're not there, but it was God that chose there is one chapter in Genesis that is nothing but a real estate transaction. Abraham comes into the promised land, but he doesn't have possession of it yet, and he's, with, he's good with the pagan kings. And his wife died, and he says, I want to buy a tomb for my wife. And the pagan kings love Abraham so much, they say, no, we won't let you buy it. Your money's no good here. I'll give you this, the cave of Machpelah. And Abraham says, no, i got to buy it. Now, why is that in the Bible? How, I can't think of anything more boring than a real estate transaction. Because the author of the Bible knew that would be a big issue in the end. UNESCO says that tomb of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, and Leah is not Jewish and has no connection to the Jews at all. It is a Muslim shrine. Call me old-fashioned, but when I hear Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I think the Jews, okay? I don't know. It's just me, I guess. By the way, you notice who's not there in that little family burial plot? Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. Honey, you're my favorite wife. I love you. All right. Anyway, 
what happened to Rachel? Well, she died in childbirth outside of Bethlehem. And when she gave birth to uh, Benjamin. So Jacob bought land there and made a tomb, and that's been there ever since. But UNESCO came to Bethlehem and saw Rachel's tomb. And said, that is not Jewish. It has nothing to do with Jewish people. That is a Muslim shrine. Okay. And then they went to the Temple Mount. Holiest site for all of the Jews. And they looked at the Temple Mount and they said, this is not Jewish. This is a Muslim holy place. Has nothing to do with the Jews. Now, look, here's where it gets interesting. Netanyahu spoke out. I mean, the lunacy was just too much. So he said, if you have any doubt that the Temple Mount is Jewish, or ever was Jewish, why don't you go to Rome? When I first heard him say that, I thought, what? Rome? Oh, yeah, one of the most beautiful things in Rome is a preserved Ark of Titus. It's a commemoration of the sacking of the temple in 70 AD, and it's got a base relief on the side, and one of the most visible things from the base relief is the Roman legionaries carrying away the holy candelabra and the sacred uh, trumpets and tools of the temple. Okay, a living testament in Rome that the Temple Mount is Jewish. See, that's, an, that's another one. I, I won't, I won't keep, bore you with that, but the Temple Mount, too, there's a whole chapter about the, how that was bought. King David bought it. And it was the same thing. A pagan owned it, and he said, David, I'll give you that Temple Mount. I won't sell it to you. I love you. You're my king. I'll give it to you. David said, there's no way. i got to buy it. Why are these boring details in Scripture when God handpicked everything in Scripture? Because he knew it would be a controversy in the end times. <laughs> it's a testament, okay. So anyway, uh, the siege will be against Judah and Jerusalem. And that is a siege. I mean, the people, the 600,000 people that live in Judea that are Jews uh, are called settlers and usurpers and invaders and occupiers. And the whole world wants them out. And Jesus did say in Matthew 24, look, if you know Daniel, you're going to see again the sacrilege. Stand in the holy place. When you do that, if you live in Judea, you better run for your life because the tribulation will begin at that point. Now let me go on, okay? Uh, this is just the first two verses. Uh, verse 3, That day I'll make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all the people. See, the earlier one was for their immediate neighbors. I can remember when, his, when Islamic terrorism was a Jew's problem. We just didn't have it. We just didn't deal with it. And it was their problem. And every time a pizza parlor would be blown up or a school bus full of children or a family's throat would be slit, the whole world would preach to the Jews and say, hey, you've got to work with these people. You've got to be fair to them. You've got to give them land. And now it's all our problem. Zechariah saw it. A burdensome stone for all the world. Now what I see in this verse is, uh, metaphorically speaking, the kings of the earth and the rulers, which is a technical term in the Bible for the ruling elite, the people of the world. Which, by the way, this is interesting to me, but in America we're beginning to understand that the very top levels of society are a good number of Satanists and very 
very evil people. There's a tremendous significance to the rest of this Jeffrey Epstein and the trembling of the people that are on his lists who visited his temple to do debauchery on children. Okay, man, are we in the end times? Is judgment ever coming? It is so at the door. The judge is at the door. I know. I told you this 20 years ago when I first came. Or I tell you this every time I come. But good heavens, look at it. Look what's happening. And ask yourself if this is sustainable. The Holy God sees it. He's going to bring judgment down on the earth. And people got to get ready for it, right? So uh, Zechariah says, In that day I'll make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all the people. So all the leaders of the world are marching along the yellow brick road and right around the corner is their goal, which is a godless utopia where all the world could be as one. You know, a good idea of what they want is basically John Lennon's song, Imagine. A horrible hymn of Satan, okay. But they want it and they believe in it and they think they can make it happen. But wait, there's something in the way. The issue of Jerusalem. It's just in the way. So I'll just pick on my own country. Americans are sol uh, problem solvers. So the uh, president says, I'll roll up my sleeves. I'll solve this. I'll pick up that stone, get it out of the way, and we could go on our march to progress. Only Zechariah said, anyone that picks up that stone is going to be lacerated. That's what it literally says. Cut to the bone. I have a blog, and I wrote a, a blog article a couple of years ago called The Laceration of Two Presidencies. That they were actually flying high on their way to the pantheon of American success stories and then they tried to solve this problem and they were cut to the bone. The one example I'll give you is George Bush Jr. who uh, with Ariel Sharon to make peace forced the Jewish people out of the Gaza that same week, Hurricane Katrina came and ruined his presidency. He is a pariah to this day. And Ariel Sharon went into a coma that very week, which he lingered in for eight years and then finally died. I will cut to the bone anyone that thinks they could just pick up this problem and move it. This problem is intractable. Only God can solve it. Anyway, he says, uh, though all the people of the earth are gathered together against it. See, if I had more time, I could take you through the statistics of UN votes. Only since 1945 has there been a World Congress of Leaders. In other words, this verse has been incapable of fulfillment until 1945. Because in 1945, literally, all the peoples of the earth were gathered together in Congress in New York City, I wish they'd move it to Nigeria or something. And they vote and they, and they determine the status of uh, the world peace, but they spend more than a third of their time deliberating over three issues at least. Israel, Jerusalem, and Judea. I kid you not. You look at the world and its problems, and you look at the size of Israel compared to the, just the Arab world, it's a little postage stamp. But the world leadership and the, and, the, and, the, and the lopsided voting 
Because they sit there and they vote to condemn. They vote to decide the boundaries of Jerusalem. They vote to say, you got to go back to 1967. They vote to say how many Jews could live in Judea. They are on a collision course with the Most High God. It is God that is working. Remember? Behold, I will make. All right. And he says, they're all gathered together against them. And it's true if you see these votes. Uh, no, UNESCO did this outrageous thing where they said the Temple Mount is uh, not Jewish, it's Muslim. And uh, they had a vote at the UN within a week that basically almost unanimously agreed. <laughs> what? It's the loonies are running the asylum. Now I'm going to tell you what's going to happen here. And I'm going to skip ahead, okay? See, in Israel's short history, they've had many wars. And people were deceived because in 1967, there was such an outstanding victory. And the deception is that, oh, wow, for a small country, that IDF is something else. No, that wasn't the IDF. That was God. That was a miracle. But here's the thing about Israel's wars. They are uh, getting worse and worse for the Jews. Okay. Uh, the, 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 the Hezbollah wars in 2006, the Jewish government and the Hezbollah all both agreed that Hezbollah got its military objectives and Jew, the Israel didn't. Okay. That's called losing a war. Okay. In 1974, they were almost wiped out. I mean, Syrian tanks penetrated almost completely right through Jerusalem. Okay. And uh, I'll tell you a little vignette from that war because I think that so much that happens in the news is of God. Wisdom cries out in the streets. So, Golda Meir was president in 74, and Israel wasn't a client state of the United States or of Britain. It was a client state of France. And she called in desperation because they are running out of tank parts, plane parts. They're in a hot war. And when you're in a hot war, you need that stuff right now. And she said to the French, we need this, 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 this. She had a shopping list. And the French said, sorry, we have a new agreement with the Arabs and we're not your, you're not our client anymore. So then she contacted the United States State Department and talked to Henry Kissinger. Has anyone ever heard of him? And Henry Kissinger actually said publicly, let the Jews bleed a while. But she went over his head. And she spoke to a very, very reviled man. He too is a pariah, although I love him just for this story. Richard Nixon. Anyone ever heard of him before? He said, she said, we're in desperation. Can you give us this shopping list? And Nixon said, look, when I was a kid, my mother used to read the Bible to me. And she one time looked up from the Bible and said, Dick, if you can ever help the Jews, do it. And he airlifted the parts. Now, I believe God delivered them, but he used them, him. So I love him, and I see why the devil hates him. Okay. Uh, it's a beautiful story, right? But these wars just keep getting worse and worse and worse. And I'm going to tell you what's going to happen, okay, is that the day is going to come when Jerusalem will be overrun by savages. Now, I don't want to see that. You don't want to see that. But we're not the ones in charge of history. God is. Look at Zechariah chapter 14. It's a prophecy to Jerusalem. Behold, the day of the Lord comes. Well, let me just stop and, and define that. The day of the Lord means 
the day of his specific personal intervention in the affairs of this world. The day of the Lord is at hand. Okay, He says, the day of the Lord comes, he's prophesying to Jerusalem here, and your spoils shall be divided in the midst of you. He says, and I'll gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be taken, and the houses will be rifled, and the women will be ravished, and half the city shall go forth into captivity. Well, wait a minute, why half? Zechariah didn't know 2,500 years ago that the UN would divide the city in two. Give half to the Palestinians, which, by the way, that's a fake name, but that's another story for another time. There are no Palestinians. Palestinians is a perversion of the word Philistine. Now, you might even have a Bible with a map in it that probably calls the Holy Land Palestine. That is false teaching right there in your Bible, okay? Why does the, Bible, why is the Holy Land called Palestine? Well, that goes back to the Romans in 120 A.D. Those Jews were so troublesome, they said, we are going to wipe them out for sure. And they mean, they've, they've, they've sowed salt on the Temple Mount and plowed it in and made a plain and everything, tried to build a uh, temple to Jupiter. And to humiliate the Jews, they renamed Israel to Provinza Syria Palestina. Now, why would that be humiliation? Because the, the Philistines were the inveterate foes of Israel for centuries. Until David and Solomon absolutely subdued them, wiped them out. But the Romans, to humiliate them, renamed the place. Remember what the book of Psalms says? They want to wipe the name of Israel off the earth. You know, uh, <laughs> before I go further, you know why it is... How many remember 1967, the Six-Day War? That especially the grainy films of Israeli paratroopers coming into Jerusalem. Now, that was just historic. 67 was a historic year. For the first time in 2,000 years, Jews in the diaspora would pray every year at Passover. Next year in Jerusalem, next year in Jerusalem, next year in Jerusalem. For 2,000 years. But in 1967, they did take Jerusalem. And you have that picture of them weeping at the wailing wall, which is basically the retaining wall of the temple. And you think, oh good, they get to do this. They get to do it next, this year in Jerusalem. But Moshe Dayan and uh, Golda Meir gave the orders to turn the Temple Mount over to the Waqfa, which is the Islamic custodianship of holy places. Muslims have been determining since 1967 who goes on that mountain, how many, and they say you cannot pray, you cannot sing, you cannot do anything religious. I mean, it's in total control. And this always just rang my bell like, ah, that couldn't be God. How could that be? And then I remembered a verse of Jesus. I'm almost done. In Luke, he says, Jerusalem should be trodden underfoot of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. Okay. What happens at the end? When Jerusalem is overrun, people flee for their life. Jews leave Judea, flee into the wilderness. Jews leave Jerusalem, flee into the wilderness. Savages chase them to try to wipe them out finally. Satan wants to wipe them out. And in the end, this is what brings God 
back. This is what brings Jesus Christ back. It says in verse 2, I'll gather all nations to Jerusalem uh, to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half the city shall go forth into captivity, and the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth. The Lord is going to come back, and what is going to bring him back? See, uh, this is another thing uh, in closing, is that why hasn't Jesus come back yet? A lot of people don't realize that there is a very specific reason why Jesus hasn't come back. Some say, well, because we haven't witnessed enough people and we haven't done this and we haven't done that. No, it has nothing to do with us. The final bodily return of Jesus Christ to this earth, the final intervention, the day of the Lord is awaiting an event. You know what it is? The repentance of Israel. Jesus said to him, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosea said that uh, I'm going to go back in the name of God. I'm going back to the place I came from, says the Lord. I'm going back. You won't see me again until you acknowledge your offense. What is the meaning of the great tribulation? What is the meaning of this world changing so radically? What is the meaning of the Muslim revival? It's all calculated. To hem them in and press them and bring them back to their holy land to bring them to repentance so the Lord can save them. See, this is what happens. This is the climax of history. This is the prophecy sitting on your lap in great detail of our day. Go to Zechariah 12, 10 and then I'll close. What happens? Then their backs against the wall when the city's taken when they're being overrun by savages, when Jews are running for their life and reliving the exodus out in the wilderness, living in booths. Something unexpected happens. What? They see Jesus. He comes to them. Zechariah 12. I'll pour, verse 10, I'll pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me whom they have pierced. Notice this, the wording. They will look on me whom they pierced. When did they pierce? Yahweh. <laughs> and they shall mourn for him as for an only son. Now isn't that what our salvation was? God gave us a revelation of Jesus. That's how I got saved. I used to sit in the Catholic Church and look at a crucifix, and I seriously would go, why? What's it all about? I know he loves me, but I don't know how to apply it. What's this? Am I supposed to suffer? Am I supposed to be humble? Am I supposed to hate myself? What is it? Then one day God showed me that Jesus died for me as a substitute for my sin. That's when I got saved. I saw him. They will see him, and they'll be saved. It goes on to say that as a result of this, a fountain shall open up in the city of Jerusalem. It's a fountain that you and I are all familiar with because we sing of it often. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath the flood will lose all their guilty stains. When that fountain is opened up for them, you know what it's like? It's like the best player on the team gets to take the field again. 
The prodigal son is welcomed back with a robe and a kiss. Paul gets his eyesight back. He, he goes out there, okay? There's all that. All that's in, in this, okay? And that fountain will accomplish two things. The one thing it will accomplish is the cleansing of their sins, just as we know the cleansing through the blood of Jesus. And the second thing it will accomplish is that it shall quench the spirit of false prophecy, which has blinded and deceived the Jews to this very day. 